Redwood Soundwell. What the hell is up? I went out on a limb for you and you just failed? I'm not about stealing. What are you talking about? You ripped off those cheers. Listen, Missy, our cheers are 100% original. Count the trophies. We can't go to regionals with a stolen routine. It's too risky. Changing the routine now would be total murder-suicide. <laughs> what is this, hush money? Oh, right, it's guilt money. You pay our way in and you sleep better at night knowing how your whole world is based on one big old fat lie. You want to make it right? Then when you go to nationals, bring it. Don't slack off because you feel sorry for us. That way, when we beat you, we'll know it's because we're better. I'll bring it. Deal is finished. The house lights are up. It's time to examine Bring It On as the first part of our ongoing series about losing the big game. This is Fields of Glory, and I'm Biggs. And I am Aaron. And Biggs, one thing that you know that other people may not is that for a long time, I was an intercollegiate speech and debate coach, which means not only did I go to regular national debate championships, which is something I like to talk about on this show quite a bit, but also in interesting ways. I have experienced this movie before without seeing it. I think this is the first time I'd ever sat down to watch this movie, but this is an important movie. It is 22 years old now. Wow. Don't know how to handle that, but there it is. Yeah. (laughs) I was thinking back to all of my years doing speech and debate. I started coaching in 2004 or so, and there are these dramatic speech events that people can do, and you can cut and arrange material together to make a commentary about things that you want to talk about. You can make an argument by arranging parts of movies and poetry and music and things like that. It's one of the many events you can do in competitive speech that I adore. And this movie shows up so many times in that community because of how truly critical it is, and yet at the same time, in love with the content it is. This is a movie that very clearly loves cheerleading and is going to be explicit about (laughs) all of the things that are so deeply concerning about this sport. And to sit down and finally watch it, also to see Kirsten Dunst, you and I talked a little bit before we recorded, about how she's such a monumental performer in the history of Hollywood, and to see her in this particular role at this particular time in her career. It was just really fascinating to watch. Um, I have a lot to say, obviously. What's your reaction to seeing this? Was this the first time you'd seen this or where are you at on this? So I saw it when I was 21. And just to put it on Front Street, my priorities at age 21 was partying girls and playing music in some order. (laughs) Uh, So I didn't really remember this movie. I vaguely remembered one of the competitions. I knew I'd seen it, but I never felt the need to go back. And it was one of those ones where I would see so many people talk about it. And I was like, why? And then I rewatch it. I'm like, oh, that's why. Because I was a dumb 21 year old. I was probably very, very stoned when I was watching it, not really picking up. Just the way it positions everything is very interesting. Yeah. Like it's so over the top that it makes it very, very entertaining. And I think that was just lost to me at age 21. Uh, where at age 43, it really stood out and was very enjoyable. The book I'm waving at you is called Making Camp, and it's by Shugart and Wagoner, are the two authors. And they talk about camp as an absurdist exaggeration. And they talk about how camp is often used to transgress and celebrate at the same time. The quotation that I loved from this book, there's so many, but the one I really liked for this movie, to put on femininity with a vengeance suggests the power of taking it off. They say this is pulling from a couple of other folks there in their introduction and just talking about how you can celebrate femininity and all of the kind of patriarchal ways that it's been crafted in an appropriative fashion by aggressively exaggerating it. And that is precisely what the introduction to this movie does. lyrics come at you directly and make you so uncomfortable (laughs) with the realities of cheerleading, both in that it is very difficult. It is so difficult to synchronize and memorize and hit and pose and to do all of those things, true athleticism. And at the same time, the history of the gays is just weird. It is really, and not just weird, predatory is the word that we will use if we're being accountable, right? Don't you hump! Woo! 
we're feeling that push and pull in this movie too because it was written by a female journalist this was her first screenplay yeah jessica bendinger right some of it's mortifying like i wrote it you know i was <laughs> i was like 29 years old it was a long time ago i sold it in 1996 and i wrote it in 1997 so it's even more than 20 years for me and was certainly in my life for a long time so yeah you're face to face with your immaturity as a writer, your inexperience as a writer, your um, let's call them time stamped choices because you're making a movie for a moment. And so a mm -hmm. lot of stuff was time stamped in a way that was very self confronting and uncomfortable. But you know, we're all human. And um, my heart was in the right place. And mm -hmm. I knew what my intention was with those mistakes. So and tone. Mm. This is the hardest thing, right? This is the thing all screenwriters really struggle with because a lot of a screenplay is performative, right? You're kind of performing the story in words for potential filmmakers, buyers, et cetera. You're like, here it is, this is it. This is camp. This is high camp. It's got heart, but it's really campy. And then it's directed by a male director. Uh -huh. he, only, he saw that. I mean, that states itself from the opening cheer. We all know how you feel about cheerleaders and I know I'm gonna be fighting that every single page of this script you get that push and pull you get commentary on how men are screwing up in many ways and then at the same time you get this camera that just leers on the women in uncomfortable ways you know you get both of those and you get stories about cliff that are just deeply like why is he so inspired i don't oh my god dude. <laughs> his song is not that good okay it's not that good i i under anyway sorry go ahead <laughs> yeah and and the whole gay bashing of it as well yeah it's such a hallmark for that time and i mean yes it was in cinema before but there was something about the years like i'm gonna say 2000 to 2015 that were just so over the top with always having your characters point out that they're not gay and doing it in a very insulting way and then a lot of trying to have your cake and eat it too like this is trying to say like we're okay with it but then also like but we're not gay you know what i mean and they're doing both things at once which is not really progressive <laughs> it's just a lot of noise when you do that definitely that generation in time is trying to speak to homophobia to commodify it, but doing so in ways that are not well positioned. And so what you get is homophobic ways of calling out homophobia. And this is typically done, as you, as you mentioned, through this kind of lens of scapegoating, yeah. where we put the voice of the homophobe in the football player, and the audience is supposed to root for the gay cheerleader who finds the boy at the championship at the end. It is very awkward, and it is often deeply problematic throughout the movie and at the same time you see a major motion picture i mean you know this isn't a a huge movie but in 2000 numbers they spend 11 million on this which is a pretty decent chunk of change that's not an expensive movie but that's a lot of money it's not by today's standards but that was a mid-budget movie right at those times and mid-budget movies were a very real thing that was the majority of our feasting at the movie theaters like it was mostly mid-budget movies you get maybe 10 to 20 popcorn movies a year 20 on like a heavy year but typically around 50 right and then you get some low budget movies if you have you know a, a small theater like the Myrna Loy where I live in and Helena yeah these mid-budget movies they made a lot of them and part of the strategy was if you make five mid-budget movies most likely one will blow up enough to pay for the other four and pay for the next five that's the idea <laughs> this one made 17 its opening weekend which means you broke even and then a little bit on top and it grossed 90.4 and it spawned one two three four four, five, six, seven sequels, including Bring It On, Cheer or Die, a slasher movie that came out in 2022. Oh my God, we're so dead. Bring it on! Somebody's trying to kill us! This is so messed up! Biggs and my wife Kate both said what? And these are two people that I would assume would have already known about such a thing, but there it is. There's also a musical. There's a theatrical musical that is based on this Slow motion down the hall 
so your example is exactly right on how it doesn't really matter what those other movies are this one hit that's not saying all these movies like okay bring it on in it to win it bring it on worldwide cheer smack i'm not sure that these are movies that a lot of people know about but there they are (laughs) and um that's making a franchise for sure and it's a, a smart one it's critical and also essentializing we'll talk about it for sure what was your reaction to watching it this time around you want to just hit hit me with that real quick i was delighted honestly other than the criticism we threw out on top yeah i was approaching this as work and instead i found pleasure which i did not expect yeah it was just fun to watch yeah i really enjoyed the campiness aspect of it how'd you feel about it same i think that that i would say i expected to really like this movie i really did because i i'd heard it in competitive speech and debate spaces which is where people go looking for the best versions of arguments that they can find and this movie makes a lot of very smart arguments and i really appreciated that listen i'll say it i like gymnastics i like competitive dance and yes there's a sexualizing component to that gaze that will be weird for us to talk about when we confront standpoint at the end here and you and i have agreed we will navigate those spaces together but just to boil it down to the sheer athleticism of what it takes that many people to perform it and how hard that is how brutal that is how frankly dangerous that is and how it out with cheerleading especially it is all expected to be carried not only with just this complete and believable smile across your entire body, but in a space that will diminish you. We will make fun of and mock and dismiss the cheerleader at the same time that we fetishize them. And having known many wonderful cheerleaders my whole life, very brilliant people and incredible people that are aware of these you know, stereotypes of their existence, this movie is really enjoyable <laughs> in that angle where it is just this big middle finger to the whole world that is like we see you looking at us and um here we are there's a great book chapter we'll talk about at the end it's called cheering ain't for show y'all it's in a book called sports plays euro and lane are the editors 2021 is when that came out this chapter is written by michelle carriger it's got a great conversation that we'll pick up about how really deep the symbology is of cheerleaders and how truly informative the symbology is not only in how we fetishize but also how we discipline the cheerleader and this movie does both you know the one touch i wanted to make while you were talking about this is that at the top of that uh, chapter they talk about a play called aliens versus cheerleaders a short action comedy and as soon as i read that from the alien movie project to now i was like here they are these narratives colliding and and alienhood and cheerleading are part and parcel because the it's always about not belonging when we are bashing the cheerleader where we're bashing them from the view of the outsider someone who's alienated by popularity or beauty or charisma or whatever it is that we hate about cheerleaders this movie really does a good job of speaking back to all of that and it created what i think will be a very wonderful conversation we'll have at the end about how cheerleading and football couple together to tell a very explicit story of settler colonial belonging who what kind of man and how do you know what kind of woman and how do you know and what are our roles in this constant drama that plays out in our minds we had a deep dive on that that was kind of fun before we, we get into that we should probably take a look at the tape right tell people what happens in this movie and uh just wrap them up on the plot real quick torrent shipman has become the new captain of the toros cheers squad she chooses gymnast and outsider missy patone as its newest member on the first day of practice missy refuses to learn the routine she drives torrents to east compton to show her that it was lifted by her predecessor the clover squad confronts them and calls them thieves. The team votes to keep the routine, fearing that there's not enough time to change it. The Clovers change up their game and do the routine in sync with them to the horror of the crowd. The Toros get a choreographer. At regionals, another team has the same routine they just learned. One of the officials calls them out and tells them to get a new routine before the finals. The Toros work longer practices and write a new routine. Meanwhile, the Clovers don't have enough money to compete. Torrance finds a way to fund them, but they refuse and figure it out for themselves. Their captain, Isis, tells Torrance all she wants to do is for her to bring it. At the showdown, Isis and Torrance show respect to each other. The Clovers win and Toros gain a moral victory performing a clean routine and earning second place. I had mentioned to you that this movie ends a little bit like Rocky where it's not so much about actually winning. I mean, the whole batch is about losing. Yep. So we're going to come back to this, I think, quite a bit, this comparative. Go in the distance is the whole component of Act 3 for Rocky, the big fight. And here it's about bringing it. And my question to you is, are these the same thing? I think so in a lot of ways, right? I think so. 
like going the distance is a literal term in boxing, but it's also it's a sports metaphor that we throw around all the time. And they're definitely going the distance in this one for sure. Probably true for bring it too, or bring it on. I would imagine. I don't know. Like, I guess it's a little more literal. This movie is very explicit about the views of uh, the gaze of masculinity. It's very explicit about the legacies of gentrification and the ways that whiteness steals and appropriates from impoverished spaces and then tries to pay its way out of apologizing for that, right? Like you've got that whole angle on this. I I feel like the boyfriend angle is weird. Cliff, the boyfriend, is there exclusively to be the guy that hates cheerleading but loves the main character in an effort to try to rope in the non-cheerleading people because there's always people that will hate cheerleaders. That's the disciplinary aspect of cheerleading that we have talked about, right? Yeah. And Cliff is there to give them space to like be in the audience. They can fetishize the girl and get the girl. They literally have a shirt that says cheerleading equals death. Oh, that was a little brother. Yeah. I thought they both had it. I could be wrong. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, that was a little brother after uh, she blackmailed him back. <laughs> yeah. Fascinating movie just in terms of how it's built. Excitement, right? What were your thoughts on this? I was very surprised that they did a co-opting message. I was shocked. Yeah. I mean, I read the plot and I was like, okay, so they're going to try for it. And it feels like they really did try. And I was talking to you about this because I don't know if it's irony or it was just lost on the writer of this. You have a plot about co-opting and then of course you position the black latina squad in east compton which right is is a space that you would think of uh for minorities at that especially at that time right and then you position all the white people in san diego but san diego was taken from mexico and their mascot is the toros and so it's like was that intentional or did they just not even (laughs) think about it when they were writing it like i don't know it's like an inception level to me it's either the most brilliant writing or it's just like a horrendous overseeing of it you know the reason that it could be brilliant is because it is camp the name of the team is like ranchero carne or something which translates to meat ranch which i think is again a good example of where camp is going to be very exaggerated camp will say the quiet part out loud that's what and 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 by out loud i mean like with exclamation points and yes emphasis on the part that was supposed to be quiet i'm lying And I think that in that angle, it makes a lot of sense to be like, this is how it was written. And it's exciting that this is the particular counterpoint that you bring up in the Monstrosity book by Califel that I talk about quite a bit. She talks about the shooter, James Holmes, who was from San Diego and how they counterpoint San Diego to her home of Aurora, Colorado, saying that San Diego suburbs is coded as a wider space than Aurora, Colorado, even though San Diego is more diverse than Aurora, Colorado. And it's the counterpoint that the San Diego suburbs are built in the imaginary to be a very white space. And Biggs is right. It was stolen. It was definitely stolen. Yeah. (laughs) And so For this movie to be telling the story of theft from the standpoint of a narrative that is whitewashing the the space and place of San Diego is either incredibly ironic or an exact example of where camp hits on the nose. And one of the things that we'll say about camp that I think makes it so funny and so interesting and so exciting, frankly, is that by exaggerating the lie, you can expose it in all sorts of surprising ways. And this is where you and I went down that inception level rabbit trail where we're like, is this just all that sports are? Is all that sports are is us just reimagining and retelling the the stolen land story to ourselves and all of the settler colonial critics that I've been reading the last couple of years are just nodding emphatically on the sidelines being yes this is you are whatever mascot you find and you and I looked at our own the Helena High Bengals and we (laughs) talked a little bit about you know England's relationship with India and how the Bengal Tiger plays into the imaginary and we just and then we talked about the Capitol High Bruins and how the Grizzly Bear is situated as part of the frontier and boy, we just really had a, a, a fun trip down there. And it's a good example of where this movie has just absolute layers of smartsiness to it. And we don't want to say that that's in spite of it being about cheerleading. That's the whole misconception of cheerleading is that it doesn't come with this. It represents the community really well and that it is very self-aware and very reflexive as it does the thing. Absolutely. We, we talked about the excitement component of this movie being the, the real low point in Act 2 where they hire a choreographer. Amazing. The spirit.
Goodfinger's dude could have a whole show based on this guy for some reason. <laughs> I actually have a headline for that. Do it. Cheer panel pulls the plug on Pilastri Pyramid. <laughs> but that guy is intense. And I love a montage. I love a training montage. And he is just way more hardcore than you should ever be in any sport. <laughs> and it's great. He's wearing all black as if he's going to address ballerinas or like uh, a play. You know, like yeah. I, I think of a director that way. Yeah. But then he's just like right in their face. And the Spirit Fingers thing killed me because it's like they're exhausted because he's like, this is how you do Spirit Fingers. And he's <laughs> his fingers are just like flowing in a way that is not natural. Like <laughs> he clearly like worked out his fingers for a while to do that scene. It's not easy to do that many Spirit Fingers. I mean, I was trying when I was watching the movie and I was like, within a, a minute or two, you're like, I don't want to do Spirit Fingers. <laughs> he is theater's counter punch to cheerleading cheerleading gets made fun of by the masculine angle of football we see that in this movie cheerleading gets made fun of by the so-called establishment of mom and dad and people that want you to grow up and have a career we see that in this movie cheerleading definitely gets made fun of by the the fine arts and here we're talking about ballet and theater and that's this guy's job is to be that heel I'm a choreographer. That's what I do. You are cheerleaders. Cheerleaders are dancers who have gone with What you do is a tiny, pathetic subset of dancing. I will attempt to transform your robotic routines into poetry written with the human body. Follow me or perish, sweater monkeys. And when you said you love a good montage, I'm like, I definitely do. And this one is funny because it is a montage to nowhere. <laughs> like Typically, <laughs> yeah. the montage is supposed to be taking us to a place where we are better. And yet it is very clear fairly early on that none of this is a good idea. Oh, and yeah. They, he's pulling the rug <laughs> from you is what he's doing. They keep it going. And then they get to the competition. And I just died because the the group before them does the exact same thing and this will happen in speech and debate where you will cut a speech and then someone will have cut something almost identical or the same speech and you both just go down in flames because of that and sometimes it will be because you are hiring people to make you good and they only have so many tricks up their sleeve this moment sang to me as a speech and debate coach and oh my god it was awkward the excitement at the depths of act two is literally the whole routine after we have just seen it and it's like they're supposed to be the champions <laughs> and they come out and they're doing it as hard as a champion can and trying to be surprising and be spontaneous and it is identical <laughs> they're doing a really smart thing though which is when the first team does it you see the horror on their face from backstage because it's the same song and then they come out and they see from their point of view oh my god they're doing the same routine team but then when they go to play they will show them like sweating trying so hard but you only get like maybe three seconds at a time before like a two second awful reaction from somebody <laughs> in the crowd and they intercut it that way constantly so you just like know that they're just failing in a flop sweat you know <laughs> it is so brutal <laughs> It is a crash and bird moment that um, I appreciated so much as a, you know, we may not make it kind of moment in a movie. God, it was incredible as a counterpoint. You said, I asked you the question, like, does the end of this movie hit the same way that the end of Rocky does? And I think pretty much everyone is going to agree that the end of Rocky itself comes to this bell moment. And at the end of the bell, they're both still standing. It is what it is. This is, you have to see both routines and then we have to have an awards ceremony where we announce and i will say this is awkward i know this is a rabbit trail but i'm gonna go down it when you announce third place everybody claps and that person celebrates but when you get to the point of announcing second place as soon as you announce second place you typically have also announced first place which makes it very awkward especially in an upset like at the end of this movie the first place team tends to get pretty excited that they won and the second place team is still receiving their award anyway this movie has all of that that it has to go down so it doesn't have the same kind of narrative 
point that Rocky is going to have at the end of that. It's different because the way that Rocky ends, it's a victory for him, even though he didn't win the match, right? And Apollo, we established right before that end that like Apollo is exhausted and he, this was not the match he wanted. Mm-hmm. He was expecting to just walk through it. So he wasn't thrilled about it, right? Mm-hmm. But in this, it's like both sides are celebrating and they want the audience to be happy for both sides. You know, that's a, like a key difference. So I think the celebration at the end feels very different to me because they're trying to accomplish different things. They're trying to accomplish a victory for both parties. Yes. At the same time. Gabrielle Union said, apparently I was reading the trivia uh, for this on TikTok fairly recently, like this year, that they used more footage of the Clover's cheerleaders for the trailers than actually made it in the movie. And her feeling was that they were trying to tell people that they were in the movie more than they actually were. This movie very much could have and in fact should have been about the Clovers. Like, why is it not about the Clovers? Like, you could absolutely... Because Kirsten Dunst, right? Like, I guess that that makes sense. And that's the starlet that you hire. I don't know. But <laughs> no, I, I don't think that's it. Jessica Benninger is the writer of this movie. She was a journalist for Spin Magazine. And she was also a fan of those cheer competitions that were on ESPN. Just as a fan, no experience from what I could garner in cheerleading. I watched a couple prepping for this and they're pretty great. They definitely do not like the end of this. And it's a fun comparison. She was really thinking about the fact that all the journalists at Spin Magazine were white and they were covering all of these black artists. Then they were covering white artists who were taking black artists music. And so she was really thinking about co-opting black culture. And so she writes it around this, right? So I was somebody who benefited directly from black culture because my parents worked in spaces that were in a way benefiting from cultural appropriation for lack of a better term. Here I am, this white kid whose public school in Connecticut couldn't be preppier. And I started interning for Spin Magazine um, when Public Enemy was on the ascendancy in New York. They were very influential. And I was asked to cover Public Enemy. You can imagine. I loved hip hop. And Mm -hmm. here I am covering. I'm aware, again, of this. I am being employed writing about something very different from me. But if I don't write about it, it's not going to get covered. There's no one else covering it at the magazine at that moment in time. And I was still in college. So I think the one way in which this fails, and it's probably because it is a white writer, is she didn't think to actually center it onto the black team that's seeing the white team stealing it, which is unusual. Typically, you're not the villain and then trying to make right. The protagonist is kind of a heel. Yeah. I mean, I do think the Clovers are a more interesting story for the movie. And I do think that that would be a better movie. Yeah, I agree. But it is fascinating and odd that it is built this way. She ends up kind of being that heel because of that. We're looking for a few good cheers, cementing the squad. Yeah, this I think was actually pretty cool because it set in motion a conversation very much about building the squad. And one of the montages that we saw definitely in Major League and that I think we'll see again, Rocky and Karate Kid were about individual performers, but like we have to bring the team together is going to be kind of a fundamental part. And there's definitely going to be a quote who's with me speech this is not um the depths of act i mean sometimes i guess it's depths of act two but not the end of act three this is early on this is like we have to come together to be a team or we're gonna die kind of thing and we see that building in this movie i know i've screwed up royally as captain but i believe in this squad and i know we can bounce back from this i'm not saying it's gonna be easy it's gonna be hard work We'll need a new routine, something amazing and fresh, and we've got less than three weeks till nationals. But if we can do it, if we can pull this off, then we can really call ourselves original. Now who's with me? Missy coming on and being the outsider that has to like come to grips with her own sexualization is very weird. And I don't know how to handle it because she is right in her criticality of cheerleading in a lot of ways. She comes from gymnastics and her job is to say that cheerleading is not as good as gymnastics and fine, fine. But I think what's tough for me, it's the scene when they're doing the car washing and Cliff is Missy's brother. And that is who Tori is in love with. And that's Dunst's character. And he shows up 
and fights with his sister and tells Kirsten Dunst that he wish he had a brother. And Kirsten Dunst says, but your brother wouldn't look as good in a bikini, would he? And Cliff kind of chuckles at that. And this is where they're using the bikini to raise money by washing a car to go to nationals. So this is a moment where we are explicitly saying if you had a brother, we wouldn't be able to sexualize them in order to make money for our sport. And I'm just like hitting my head like this is so difficult to walk around in terms of how the team has to come together, not only when it comes to accounting for an insider or an outsider who will become an insider, but also that outsider is aware of how this is going to sexualize them and literally explicitly tells her brother that's what she's doing. The real war stuff. You see this moment a lot in war movies when the new recruit joins the squad and has to make their way into the squad. And obviously, the particulars of what they're judged on will differ. Here, it will be very emphatic. In this movie, it's like, your makeup isn't right or your butt is not right. And in the war movie, it will be other stereotypical masculinized tropes to emphasize on the difference of gender binarism. But it's the same function which is to, as you say, build that squad. And we have another example of this, too, because towards the end, you have the captains respecting each other, right? Like they're pointing out things that the other team could do to do better. And it's one of those moments in a war movie where you have the two generals sit across from each other and they don't like each other, but damn it, they respect each other. If anything, it's more showing ISIS accepting terraces as a captain, right? It's, it's kind of showing that she has made it to the mountaintop because she's been struggling with leading this team because she fails over and over again in this movie until the end when she loses but gets the moral victory <laughs> it totally blew my mind when you compared the moments that the team captains in this movie meet and talk to the moments that the military leaders meet and talk i'm thinking in particular about um the conversation we had in real war about the siege of jadoville yeah where they meet you said in a bar is where you brought this up and i was like mind blown at that point because this is a, a moment that happens we agreed quite a bit where we'll put down our weapons we'll put down all of our we'll realize we'll admit openly that it is all for symbology and we'll say i don't believe in flags i don't believe in this this is about me and my friends and about our cause and here it's about you know being the best and it's always about being the best what's that all about maybe we'll get there with standpoint it's wild the way that that kind of military structure is fundamental to both and i do think that's a fundamental part of settler colonialism we'll talk about that i'll say one more thing about excitement if i can on this bit which is just that when I was looking at the trivia bits for this, it emphasized that a lot of the moves that were done, especially at the end, um, in particular, the ones, I can't remember the names, all the names are there and they're pretty self-explanatory, but I think the ones where they fly forward with their head kicked up and then they, they flip over where they like literally do a Superman and then flip. A lot of these are moves that are illegal for the high school championship tournament. So they're relying on Hollywood going way over the boundary to emphasize a spectacle of excitement. And it was interesting because the same note mentioned that the uniforms for the Clovers and the Torres both had the bared midriff. There are so many articles about femininity and the midriff and how the midriff communicates sexualization and commodification. That is not allowed in the high school cheerleading competitions. And that's just another example of where the quote excitement is the kind of fetishistic gaze and where the risk and the danger elements are obviously going to be taken way over the top for Hollywood standards in order to make it that much more exciting. It's like, again, if you watch the tournaments, I think that they are exciting because what they are doing is hard, but it, it doesn't look anything like the music video at the end of this movie, obviously, right? Yeah. Because, like, yeah. And I got to say on the midriff too, this is prime territory for the midriff. Late 90s to early 2000s, that's when the midriff is so in. Like, it was everywhere. Yeah. Of course, they're going to put a midriff in the movie. It's what was really popular at the time. They're always trying to like, what are the kids like now? nowadays and then they watch a Britney Spears video and they're like okay we got it <laughs> <laughs> we got the outfit that we're going to use. Oh my God. I would absolutely want someone to write a paper about Britney Spears and the prevalence of midwifery going on. <laughs> I mean, she didn't create it, but she was definitely a part of it, right? Oh, and she definitely exploded that thing in ways that are hard to explain. It's Britney, bitch. One 
while we're on this midriff section, one of the moments that really jumped out to me in terms of the performances of masculinity and femininity was one of the weirdest. We talked about how Rocky has a very romantic dating scene where they're ice skating and getting yelled at for the amount of time that they have. (laughs) (laughs) And this movie does this odd toothbrushing moment, which is definitely orally fixated in ways that I think make everybody a little uncomfortable. But I was sitting there looking at the two of them standing there and her pajamas definitely expose that midriff and his, you know, definitely do not. And this is where I was really thinking about how even when she's like going to bed, you're still in this movie going to be sexualized in a way that encourages a kind of gaze. And when we look at how comfortable and confident he feels just like spitting and all of this other stuff, it's like a real example of like, uh, you know, man spreading. I thought that was interesting. The note that I wanted here that's weird, I think you'll appreciate this. From 3940 to 4142, that's almost two minutes if I'm not mistaken, maybe more than two minutes. We're brushing teeth. This this movie cost $11 million and it is an hour and a half runtime, almost on the nose. This is a tightly packed movie, you said. It's written tightly. And for two minutes, Biggs, if you and I sit, we've already almost hit it with the midriff point, but the point is, if we talk about this for two minutes, people get bored. That's a big gamble on a subtle scene, and it is odd. <laughs> Let's go a little bit further. Usually when there's toothbrushing in a movie, it's a guy having a conversation with a woman, and then she'll say something, and then he'll walk over with the toothbrush in his mouth, and then he'll put it to the side of his mouth and then talk. So he's never really brushing his teeth, typically, <laughs> because they're mm-hmm. like, we'll use that transition time while he walks over to have the conversation to show the business of the toothbrush, right? <laughs> the business of the toothbrush you don't make the toothbrush the business of the whole scene like that's, i've never seen that before it's kind of it amazing is so interesting and the two of them looking at each other not looking at each other looking at each other not looking at each other it's played out it is definitely heteronormative to the typical hollywood billionth degree but as a scene we're spending two minutes on toothbrushing and there's this point that i do again and again those that listen to me are probably sick of it where i just talk about real estate it's just crass real estate we have an hour and a half we have 11 million dollars there's a dollar to minute ratio here and it doesn't break down that simply but it kind of does and it's like if you're gonna spend two minutes brushing teeth then there's got to be a point to it and as you were answering this bigs in my mind i was imagining a title of a paper the semiotics of toothbrushing in hollywood cinema and i'm like you could write it it could be done someone needs to do this work it's important crest will fund your paper <laughs> they probably would they do not fund this podcast i will say that much no. okay <laughs> i promised it at the top and we do have to talk about it you said is like stealing and co-optation an important part of the story and i said that i think it is but i think that settler colonialism is a bigger part of the story and i just really want to lean on this for a couple seconds where settler colonialism is always about land politics with the helena high bangles we're talking about a particular kind of colonialism which is going to fetishize and commodify and exploit use india to make money bring money back bring tigers back put tigers in museum put stolen artifacts in museum that's old school colonialism settler colonialism is about taking and owning the land and keeping the land and when it comes to our celebrations here in this country we're talking about at the national level of these competitions people that represent their high school and that high school represents that particular place in a particular town and you go to that particular place in particular town and there's a patch of turf called a field where they will battle for their land and they will own their land and they will fight to represent their land and that is the land that they speak for when they say Compton or Michigan or wherever it is that they are from. And it is so interesting to me that when it comes to this just strict comparison between cheerleading and football, you and I both love that the football team was so inept in this movie. Just exquisite yeah. campiness par excellence. But uh, but in terms of the gender storytelling here, the ideal femininity will be sexy. It will be happy. It will be fit. It will be supportive. Uh, it will be on the sideline. And it will be brave. It will absolutely subject itself to bloody noses and lost teeth and potentially broken necks and broken legs. Cradle out! You bet I can! Okay, ready? One, two, down, up! Are you okay? I'm fine! 
fine, really. Don't you guys worry about me. It's just a scratch. I'll be back to practice tomorrow, so don't you guys fret, okay? And I don't want you to worry at all because I am a quick healer. I promise you guys, I'm going to be there for you. Then we will laugh this off. She'll be fine. Yeah, she's a quick healer. It was interesting, right? It's a scene where Charles and I talk about the soldier apologizing for dying in the war movies and how grim that yep, is. that's exactly what it is. And this movie takes that in the cheerleading tone to just be like, okay, I'm fine. I'll bleed until I die. It's just like, whoa. Um, and so that is ideal femininity. And they are cheering on ideal masculinity, which is fighting for every yard of that field, literally with every bone in their body and every neuron in their brain, just destroying 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 push them out shove them out way out take the land win and keep and own the land at the heart of the whole thing is land theft this is a drama that we tell ourselves again and again and again on stolen land frequently using sports rooted in stolen ceremonies and entertainment looking at basketball looking at lacrosse (laughs) looking at so many other sports we stole the land we commit ongoing genocide to maintain our ownership of the land and we commit this culture genocide through this kind of sports storytelling to be like it is patriotic it is who we are it's fighting for our hometown i know that this may seem like a stretch for this movie but when you look at cheering ain't for sport y'all and this book that i wanted to talk about michelle carriger talks about the cheerleader and the cheerleader uniform and how it is linked exclusively to this idea of what it means to be an american which is a very she says problematic and paradoxical term that's very very hard to explain there's a very very explicit description of the image of the cheerleader and how the uniform itself she says laminates visual identifiers the modes of doing a body to a rich tangle of assumptions about a certain kind of american femininity thus helping to make the cheerleader a provocative and effective representational trope and in this article she does a very very good job of describing the cheerleader specifically in terms of how it is made a spectacle by the male gaze how gender race and definitely class are a fundamental part how when we look at the debates about belonging within the cheerleader squad we're looking at whether i'm too fat whether i'm pretty enough whether i'm charismatic enough whether i'm patriotic enough you you have weak ankles one of your calves is bigger than the other too much makeup not enough makeup what's with the skin say it with me sunlight male cheerleaders enough said smile don't smile Good general tone and musculature. Report those compliments to your ass before it gets so big it forms its own website. And you. I take you to be the captain, which means you'll probably need more work than anyone. Look, you don't... Shh, 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 but I... No, no, no. Don't speak. Don't think. Listen and learn. All of these, in my mind, at the end of the day, are questions that the cis, white, hetero, settler patriarch is saying, like, this is what matters, and this is who we are. And the men have to worry about being tough enough, and strong enough, and violent enough. Let's definitely take a quick little break here. Hey, listener, this is Aaron from Fields of Glory, and I'm sitting here with my co-host, Biggs, and we want to tell you that if you've just not gotten enough of all of the wonderful ideas that he and I have to share about movies, have not gotten enough of us talking to people that we know to access their wonderful ideas about movies and other things, well, good news for you, we have a Patreon. We have a place that you can go to get all sorts of really cool content that you can't find anywhere else. Biggs, you want to tell them all the details about what's on there? Yeah, so we have four batch episodes for every three episodes where we do a theme, we break it down and figure out how all of them are alike. Yeah. We've got five watch-alongs to the movies for The Karate Kid, Rudy, The Natural, Kingpin, and The League of Their Own, with a couple of guests sprinkled in there. We've got a La Zero episode from the original idea of what we were going to do in the show that we had to scrap because it was far too long. Yeah. We've got expanded episodes for Rocky, Rudy, Any Given Sunday, and He Got Game. We've got a Hot Take, which is a fake sports show that we did back in the day. We've got 11 Real Roulettes, where we pick a movie at random and broke it down wild random chaos <laughs> we've got an episode of star trek versus star wars where we were comparing the two franchises we've got a that's debatable superman versus batman that's a total of 14 original episodes 27 all together with over 28 hours of content so please check out our patreon page and get all of it spanning all sorts of different movies biggs and i are interested in sports movies but we like to talk about other stuff too there are just so many cool guests 
There's so much cool content and you can find it on our Patreon page. Patreon.com slash Fields of Glory. That's Patreon.com slash Fields of Glory. Go there and make a contribution. We are not wealthy people. We spend lots of time making the content that might have helped you do your dishes or drive somewhere that was not very entertaining or interesting. If you've enjoyed any of our content at all, if you want to find more, patreon.com slash fields of glory. MVP. So I got Isis. She's the captain of the best squad. She doesn't take the check and she still finds a way to get them to the finals. And then she's able to show some respect on top of winning. She's the MVP. She's the goat of this movie. Gabrielle Union is periphery in this movie. And obviously she's got a few things to say about that. And I kind of support all of those things. And I definitely agree. I think her character is obviously built to be the kind of paragon of moral supremacy. And the performance itself is just believably good. She is both stern and strong stressed and pissed and willing to just look past it for the sake of competition call that's why i've got two all right six man award so i'm gonna go missy pantone because she wears the morals of a 90s teen like a ratty trench coat then discards them as she joins the team (laughs) (laughs) this is a prime example of a grown writer trying to connect with the youth but not really understanding what motivates them that's (laughs) that's my feeling on it oh my god that's amazing (laughs) and is that not the 90s right there (laughs) (laughs) That is an argument for the villain of the entire episode um, in my mind, and it is absolutely a six-man award argument. I love it. I am pretty sure the one I want is Janelope. I'm pretty sure that is her name. She is just the the seething pile of rage that has to be restrained um, by Gabrielle Union. And there is. There's a part of me that wants this person to have their own movie and for her to get just whatever she wants, because it's like at the end of the day when they're like, whiteness is always just going to come back and apologize and tell us that it tried hard to make it better at the end even though it sucks and it claims a moral victory i want to see what happens if kristen dunst is not touched by an angel it is funny that in the writing they call them a bunch of buffies and there are two women that show up in buffy the vampire slayer on that squad and that kristen dunst also famously was in an episode of touched by an angel and so they are literally just calling it out in the show good stuff (laughs) all right the billy zapka most outstanding villain award i'm going to give it to big red who stole the routine tried to undermine torrance's confidence when she needed guidance the most it's a clear choice for me it's gotta be aaron aaron the boyfriend is just the weirdest shithead i have ever seen he sucks but he seems so incidental to the plot that like i don't even think he's important enough to consider him i mean i know it's there but it shouldn't be there you know what i mean so i am nodding enthusiastically because literally the only purpose he serves in this plot is to be her boyfriend and while that might sound like an important thing in a cheerleader movie it does not not freaking matter whether she has a boyfriend or not it is in fact very unfortunate that she ends up with cliff in my mind that dude sucks and there's no explanation for why they end up together i could do a whole episode on why cliff sucks we just don't have time today <laughs> um, and so i think you're right Biggs. like i am definitely over hyping his role as boyfriend because like it's a big moment for her as a character arc when she faces him and says you f- and slays the dragons so to speak like that was funny the imdb trivia says that the woman that comes out of his bedroom saying he's a cheerleader in that scene is herself a los angeles lakers cheerleader so Ah. this movie is explicitly winking at both loving cheerleading and owning the fact that people will make fun of cheerleaders it's a complex place to be as a performer as an athlete what a fascinating sport we got one more here and it is called black monday i wanted to point this out to you before biggs there are no coaches in this movie. Where are the coaches? Why? Are, there's only a choreographer. That's it. Torrent Shipman, you inherited a stolen routine and continued doing it until you got called out at a football game. Then you raised money for a coordinator and learned a whole new routine, which was given to multiple squads. This was frowned on, but not against the rules. You created a new routine by leading the team to double its effort and overcoming a coup. Finally, you placed second in the big event. I question your decision making all throughout, but you were new to the role and when we're being real here you're a senior you're gonna be gone next year so whatever do what you're doing she's 17 
all of our other Black Mondays is Biggs the GM dressing down pro coaches in here. He's got a senior <laughs> in high school. Nobody escapes. <laughs> Get out of here. Get out of my office. Sports are unforgiving. And I wanted to point out the commodification of capitalism with hegemonic masculinity. We talk about how Rocky and Ralph Macchio all end up being the good male worker. The sexualization of the cheerleader body to sell tickets to go to nationals is the strangest version ever of this because they are in high school. By the way, it's a real thing too. I know it is. And I've always thought it is weird because they are in high school. The announcer at nationals in this movie, not in real life, not on actual ESPN, but on the deuce, which is the ESPN channel for this movie. The guy is like, lock your doors, bolt your windows. Daytona, Florida has been invaded by teenage cheerleaders. And what do they want? The chance to be the number one cheerleading squad in the country. You know, in high school, I couldn't pay a cheerleader to talk to me. Now, I'm surrounded by them. And let's face it, any sport that combines gymnastics, dance, and short skirts is okay by me. And I'm just like, mm, this is not okay. This is definitely, <laughs> none of this is okay. This is horrifying. And if I bring it up, I'm being political and Hollywood is good at monopolizing things. I think you're right to scorn uh, the choices that she makes. She does a good job of being the high schooler, the new coach that doesn't know what to do and is just trying to like fix it. Yeah. When she gets usurped and they're like, we're not going to nationals this year. In my mind, I'm like, that is the right decision. The right decision when you have been caught stealing and you know you are stealing is to either make your own thing up and just get wrecked because you're not as good as you think you are or to truly test yourself or to let everyone know that you are in fact stealers and to just not go anymore and if she would have taken that moral stance i would have been like damn and they talk about how cheerleading is very much about that at the nationals at the end where the guy's like one little misstep by an individual could bring the whole team down and that's a big overtone here and uh it's an interesting one with sports when we take a look at cheating because sometimes one or two people on a team will cheat and that will affect the whole team and the question then is what does the team do with that? And personally, I will tell you as a member of teams, if it impacts the team, then the team takes the fall. Like that's yep. how that works. That's, that should be how that works. I don't know. I will say that we could spend so much more time on this movie. We did not even get to the Hey Mickey outro. We didn't get to spend nearly enough time with the song at the beginning. That's what the batch episodes are for. I know. We'll revisit it in the batch episodes, but I will say this is a thoughtful movie and a good one for this show. Like the fact that it has so many sequels means we definitely could revisit it and maybe we will to get into some of these other things. Let's move on to the poll question. So what movie establishes Kirsten Dunst as the most important actress to the public eye? We were talking about this, so I figured it's a good question. It's a fun one, yeah. I've got Interview with the Vampire. It's gotta be it. Little Women, Wag the Dog, Bring It On, or Spider-Man. I think those are the the big ones, right, that establish her. So I feel like my vote would definitely be for Interview with the Vampire, but it's just because it's her first. We'll be back next week continuing our block on losing the big game with Kingpin. But coming up next, Monica and Tess confront a young man who considers using Napster to steal Enter Sandman. Frankie Muniz guest stars on Touch by an Angel. Coming up next. Are not spirit fingers. These are spirit fingers. And these are gold. Check out all the podcasts brought to you by Redwood Sound Labs. Finally, a podcast that's dedicated to talking about your favorite sports movies. Whether you want to hear a breakdown of the plot, arguments about who's the MVP of the film, or crit and lit about it, you'll find it all on Fields of Glory. Listen to the show that will help you live a better life with your beloved pets. It handles topics like proper food, nutrition, positive reinforcement training, and more. Certified dog behavior consultant Charlotte Peltz welcomes your pet concerns and questions in the podcast, Living With Your Dog. Zach and Matt are two horror movie enthusiasts of varying experience discussing horror movies through the scope of content, context, and comedy. They'll hit on the good ones and the classics, but they're really excited for the bad ones. Listen to Watch No Evil. Charles is a Purple Heart recipient and cinematographer. Aaron is a professor and critical cultural scholar. Together they explore the narrative, effective, and production politics of war cinema on the Real War Project. That's R-E-E-L, War Project. 